we are so blessed as a church with all the gifts from music and Bible study to taking care of kids to praying. Even the preaching is good here. I, I mean that. I, I think I've been here 11 or 12 years. Might seem like 20 to pastor because he's got to put up with me. But as, as a confession, this is the only church that I have not roasted the pastor on the drive home. <laughs> you know, but think about it. You know, even today when you guys leave, and you know, we a lot of us drive a long way. For me, I'm like, boy, I was fed today. I used to roast myself after I was preaching in churches. Like, I can't believe they pay that guy. And I get a solid amen from my co-pilot. Um, but it's so good to be in the house of the Lord with you guys. It just we're family. And uh, to the love that we have for each other, diverse as we are, and the love we have for God's word, and the love we have for Jesus Christ, our Savior, is just incredible. And you, you don't get that in many places. You can look in, in Linda's wonderful bulletin insert for the regular announcements. I'd encourage you to avail yourself of the Bible studies. There's many opportunities. So enough said on that. Whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh be, or what can flesh do to me? And I think that's a great verse, and I encourage you to continue reading and meditating on these weekly. And Gail has put a bookmark in the back um, for uh, each week to keep up with. Uh, and of course, Linda prints this in the bulletin each week, and I'm really appreciative of that. Uh, the great verses to memorize and, and to teach your children. We're going to have communion in just a bit, and just to give you some instructions to get this out of the way so then we can be prepared for that. Uh, this is open communion, so if you are in Christ, you're obedient to him, you can receive communion. You don't have to be a member of this church. You do need to be a member of the body of Christ. And, of course, the way we'll do it, and I get to be a creature of habit, so I'll, I might shake it up later, but for now, when uh, I'll call you forward for the elements, we'll call this side. You get up, you move over, grab the elements, both the bread and the fruit of the vine, and then return to your seat, and then we're going to wait. As Scripture says, we will take communion together. So that is what this is about, is, is to commune with Christ in the body of Christ, so you'll wait. And then I'll give you instructions to receive uh, both elements. So you pick them up, return both elements, and if you're obedient to Christ, you can receive. If, if you have some sin to confess, we'll give you a time of prayer to prepare your heart to indeed to be able to do that because the goal is for you to receive communion and to worship with Christ today. Um, 
We have, um, we've had a loss in the church, and I wanted to pray before we begin uh, our um, worship time, and the, the Hargraves have sent a memo to the church. People handle this in different ways, and I understand it. We want to respect privacy and these kinds of things, but I'm thankful, on the other hand, that they were able to share the loss of their um, preborn child five to six weeks with us and have us pray and and then also praise and on behalf of the church we also have a commemorative new testament that uh, pastor andy has and was given to them in commemoration of their child who they named and they shared this with the church again i want you i want to thank you for doing that i think this is helpful in many regards perhaps for for i don't know what all the reasons will be uh, for God and his purposes, but certainly for us to think about the sanctity of human life. That's essential in this day and days to come. Also for us to think about the brevity of life, whether it's a day or a hundred years, it's still brief in relationship to eternity and also the sovereignty of God in all things and his grace that those that are pre-born and those that are born without the mental capacity to be able to discern between good and evil have no unrighteous works to repent of or or aware of and they will not be judged on that behalf Instead, they are the very elect of God. And to that, we praise God for his amazing grace. And I can assure you this little one who the Hargraves named, Adriel August Hargraves, took Adriel from a Hebrew meaning, my help is God, or of God's flock. August was the baby's due month, and so that is derived from the Latin Gary, meaning to increase, and they report, we thought it was fitting because not only has God's flock now increased, but also our reliance on God as our help. What a great testimony, what a great testimony to the church and for us to uh, gather in solidarity together around the amazing grace of God. So let's go uh, to God in a word of prayer, thank him for his good gifts that he has given to us and put our trust totally in him. Let us pray. Father, we have gathered together here as your flock, and we're thankful and we celebrate those that are apart for however long you have granted them to us. I pray that you will use even this brief life as a testimony to your grand design, and your purpose in all things. There is nothing that happens by accidental incident, but all things are according to the counsel of your will. And Father, we are challenged sometimes to think in those terms, and I pray that we would be once again reminded of these great truths. But beyond that, to, to know that you have Grace us even in this life, perhaps with certain afflictions, that we may indeed be able to comfort those 
that might be going through similar circumstances, that perhaps these things might drive us to your word to, again, understand the wisdom of God in all things. Ultimately, they would, we would praise your holy name for who you are and to know that in your presence is fullness of joy. We lack joy at times in this life due to all kinds of circumstances that come our way, but they are overshadowed by the grace that you have granted to us in Christ Jesus. So I pray for each one of your people that indeed we would sing praises out to your holy name, have great joy because of who you are and all that you have done, all that you have promised, and all that awaits for the saints. And I pray our longing and our desires for our loved ones that have gone before us will only be a catalyst to cause us to remember really what we ultimately want is you and you alone. And so I pray that our hearts would be warmed. I pray for comfort in particularly to the Hargraves, to others that have also lost children as well in this life. I pray that our tears of sorrow may turn to tears of, of great joy as we look for a day in which there will be no weeping, there, there will be no tears, because they will be replaced with the joy that is in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would have a glimpse of that glory even today, and as we commune around the table with our fellow believers in Christ, may the joy of Christ, the peace of Christ, and the love of Christ consume our hearts even this day. Grant us a vision of Christ today. I pray in his name. Amen. And our schedule here is really one of my favorite songs, Be Thou My Vision. We're going to sing this together as a prayer, if you will, to prepare your heart for communion with Christ. So I want you to do that. Turn to 83. Blake will come and lead us here in just a moment. I like this tune. I like the words of this song, and, and it can be something to prepare you to commune with Christ, to think of Christ, indeed for him to be your vision. I don't know if one of these hymns you ever look at the bottom there. This is 83 in your hymn book. If you ever look at the bottom here, and it, it tells you where the words come from, sometimes the date on there, when it's written, and if you'll notice the word slain to the right, that's the tune that's being sung. Uh, here it just says it's an ancient uh, Irish um, song. The history of this is simple. Um, best we know, uh, and dates aren't given because this really comes from the 4th and 5th century. The tune from the 4th century, and it's said to be a tune, an Irish tune, that's set to commemorate a time when some, an English missionary to Ireland, someone we know as Pat Patrick, perhaps you've heard St. Patrick, in any case, Patrick was taken as a slave uh, and, uh, and, and did escape from Ireland, but uh, came, and came to Christ during that time. He studied for another 15 years and then went back as a missionary. As he did, he was very bold. It was a pagan land. And one of the practices that they did was to light fires to this druid god that they, uh, uh, that they had worshipped. In any case, the story is, uh, well, Patrick went back and 
and he, they were told not to light any other fires to any other gods and to wait for on this particular day in which happened to be um, uh, the church celebrated Easter uh, Resurrection Day on that day. Patrick uh, got up that morning and climbed a hill kind of in defiance to his government, interesting, <laughs> about worship because he was going to worship Christ and in their tradition lit a fire for Christ on a different hill. In any case, interesting enough, the king uh, really was um, uh, taken back by the courage and conviction of this man and, and didn't take any reprisals against his freedom of worship and expression. And so this tune was written to honor that, um, and that's the name of the hill is slain, the hill that he was on, and lit that fire to be a vision of Christ on that day. Sometime after that, and we're not certain, but a, various poems were written about that event as well, and a bit cobbled together. But we, but we do know this Mary Byrne that's mentioned here, she was a young gal, about 25 years old. She translated one of these into English, and that's essentially what you have here, some revisions, but that's what you have here is her translation. That's the early 1900s in the, in the West. And then this Eleanor took this ancient uh, tune and tied it to these poetic words. So now you know the history. And indeed, the call here from the ancient church on a missionary uh, uh, endeavor to point to Christ, that's what it is about. It is about looking to Christ and having him to be your vision. So without any further ado, if, if uh, Blake will come forward and lead us in this hymn. And let's sing this out prayerfully and reverently as we look to Christ. Okay, remain seated and turn to number 83. We'll sing Be Thou My Vision.
receiving the Lord's Supper. He says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is quoting Christ who calls, and in so doing, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. In preparation to make that proclamation, he asks, let a person examine himself, and we'll give you a moment to do that now, and prayerfully as we come to receive. Examine yourself during that time. But it isn't examine yourself to abstain from the table. It says examine yourself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That is, do so in a worthy manner. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's what this table is about. So, I'll prepare the table, and we'll have this side stand up first, come, return the middle, and then this side, and then we'll take this together. We can go ahead and start now.
thankful for the sacrifice Christ made in the cross. Yes. And where he said, this is my body. And he suffered for us. Father, we just pray that you would bless it now as we partake of this in memory of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Receive this in remembrance of the body of Christ. Second element is the fruit of the vine. It is the cup of blessing. Andy, one of our elders, if you will, would you bless the cup? Holy Father, I thank you that before the foundation of the world, you sent your son as a sacrificial lamb. Yes. And that him, nothing, you know, what can wash away our sins? Nothing, 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 nothing but the blood of Jesus. Bring it to our hearts, our minds, and we thank you for his sacrifice. Amen. Amen. Receive this in remembrance of the blood of Christ. Well, tradition is that they sing a hymn and leave, but we're going to sing a hymn and stay for more, a little bit. But we will stand and sing together 137. Stand up and bless the Lord. Stand up, bless the Lord your God for everlasting to everlasting.
for today is Psalm 36 on page 465 in the Pew Hymnals. Uh, some of the beginning of the psalm is quoted in Romans 3 concerning sinful nature. Uh, some later parts of the psalm you'll readily recognize in Christian radio station songs. But as a big picture, it starts with this look at the depravity of human nature, but then goes into a wider view uh, contrasting that with the glory of God and his hased, his loving kindness. So we have this title given here, How Precious Is Your Steadfast Love. I'll focus the remainder of my comments on the end of verse 9 there. In your light do we see light. Uh, there's no fact out there that's neutral and divorceable from God. If you think you have a fact in your hand that's a true fact and you've divorced it from our creator, then you have missed the boat on that fact. It's like putting your car on a steep hill and just letting it sit in neutral and not expecting it to fly down into someone's house or something. And that's why a lot of us homeschool because uh, these, uh, I'm a school teacher, but a lot of the average public school teacher will readily vote for a certain guy who is admittedly a godless socialist. And they would say, oh, we're just teaching the facts, but it's the facts on that steep hill that does miss the boat. A lot of people are yelling about science today, for example. But why does science even work? Because you have repeatable tests that work because the laws of nature are the same every day, because our God has made the world in a wise and orderly way. So if you have a secular scientist and you press them on why does science even work, the answer needs to be science works just because. A lot of people are yelling about racism today. We know why racism is wrong. God made man in his image. So racism is a sin. But if you press the secular man who's making a fuss about racism, why is it wrong? Deep down, they plagiarize Christianity and can't explain it. That's why you have people that, without God, would say that, oh, I'm a black supremacist because white people are a deficient mutation and uh, they're lacking the melanin. Or a white supremacist would say that uh, the darker-skinned people are uh, less evolved, but we know they're all made in the image of God. And so if you don't like racism, you need to repent and embrace Orthodox Christianity to even know why it is a problem. Or what about even maintaining just the facts that are in this book? Remember what Jesus said about the birds that come and snatch up those seeds in the heart that doesn't have the grace to be receptive to God's word. Now this uh, psalm talks about mountains and clouds and beasts. And we know we could see the hased, the loving kindness of God when we look at clouds and mountains and beasts. Uh, my father, for example, will have lunch with him afterwards. Uh, he's unbelieving. He worships the earth mother goddess, prays to the moon. It's, it's, it's idolatry. 
doesn't see the God behind uh, any of these things. But those birds could just eat up, eat up the word of God that's, that goes in one ear and out the other. I once asked that unbelieving father of mine, if you remembered a single parable of Christ, oh, he changed water into wine. But uh, it, it, it is harrowing, and uh, it haunts me how John Owen would write about how the word of God being so powerful that if you're resistant to it, it can actually make your heart even harder just by hearing the word of God. It's true that through hearing the word of God comes faith, but it could also make us in even worse shape because it is that powerful. Though God give us the grace to read his word today. Psalm 36, to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit, He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful that we could be here to uh, hear your word today. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I just pray again for uh, the, the so many younger ones that they have. I pray that They would see all of the men and women here that love you and love your son and that serve the body of Christ with all of their gifts. And uh, I pray that uh, they would see uh, the the glory and goodness of uh, and rightness and fittingness of all the different ways that we uh, joyfully serve. Uh, Give us the hearts to joyfully serve and also uh, joyfully and cheerfully give. Uh, to the church in our offerings. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 156. We'll sing the first, second, and last. First, second, and last of number 156. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Thank you, Blake, Amber, and Church. And I hope Christ is indeed your friend. 
Our text this morning comes from John chapter 15. And hopefully I won't break down as much today delivering this message as I have in my study preparing for it. Spending time with Christ in his word is a, is a time well spent. I encourage you to do it. One of the joys and privileges of having to get up here and speak every week is it causes me to go look into God's Word and find something to talk about. And there's many a good time. And sometimes I'm taken um, pretty deeply into it. And those times need to be more and more often. And again, I encourage you to read the words of Christ, and particularly in the Gospels, and maybe some of that will make a little bit more sense as we continue here in John chapter 15. I was hoping to really kind of finish out this chapter, but as I spent time in it, and I was going to move our focus from verse 20 forward to the end, which is 27, there's so much here, I'll just see what I can get done today, and uh, whatever we don't finish, we'll pick up next time. This is in context here of the hatred of the world towards those who would follow Christ, his disciples. It's specifically given to the disciples that are in the upper room, but it is meant for all who would follow Christ and hence be a disciple of Christ or a Christian. Verse 18, we focus on that the last few weeks. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Christ, don't expect to be treated any differently than he was treated. At this point in history, in just a few hours... The hatred of the world will be demonstrated as they take Jesus Christ, an innocent man, and crucify him. Societal system under the direct influence of Satan himself, the prince, the power of the air, hates Jesus Christ. It was not good enough for them just to kill him, just to do away with him, at least in their mind, as they thought. No. If you read the gospel account, and I encourage you to do so, they had to torture him in addition. And beyond torture, they had to humiliate him to a great degree. This is great hatred against Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples, look, they, they hated me, and they're going to see it. And they're going to hate you, because you love me. Now, the world, the world system, they won't demonstrate their hatred to that degree, 24-7, and to its fullness. They may feign that they love you, or in this case, Jesus, they may sing out hosannas on Sunday, but by Friday, they'll be yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. 
It is an amazing turn of events and quite revealing of what Jesus is saying. They hated him all the time. They just superficially praised him, maybe in a superstitious way, maybe in hopes to get something in it for themselves, whatever it was they hated Christ, of who Christ actually really is. So Jesus gives his disciples a fair warning because he's going to send them out into the world, as he does with you. If you remain here on earth and you're a follower of Christ, if you're a disciple, there is a purpose. And when he's done, he'll call you home. But for now, you're here, and it is to minister the word of Christ, to minister to the body of Christ, but note that those that are outside are diametrically opposed. And so Jesus tells his disciples all along in the Gospels that they indeed are to follow him by picking up their cross and coming after him. He didn't mix words or give them a false idea of what they were going to get into. <coughs> he says, if you want to follow me, be prepared to be humiliated, at the very least, to be misunderstood, to be gossiped about, thought ill of, Oh, and yes, in some cases, to actually be tortured and killed. We know the rest of the story. They all would die, all these apostles. They all will be humiliated. They all will suffer painful deaths. John, the apostle writing, is the only one was spared, but church history tells us he, prior to this, he was actually boiled in oil. Somehow he survived that event only to be sent to a penal colony on the island of Patmos. But God has a purpose for that, to write the book of Revelation. But he did suffer greatly. They will not be called, that is, those disciples and all disciples, anyone who follows Christ. I'm going to be clear about the message. We are not calling you to health, wealth, prosperity, and good times. That's a false gospel. There is someone else who preaches that, and they look pretty good doing so. And they may smile a lot, and they may jump around a lot, or whatever else they might do, but it isn't true. Christ will tell you the truth. He tells you the truth here. Expect persecution. Live godly in Christ Jesus and you will suffer. And perhaps, not that we're trying to bring it on, but it will naturally occur, particularly if you're in opposition to the world. The world system that is under satanic influence, by the way, has no interest in the message that is right here. They don't have any interest. So they, they're going to have to criticize it from the beginning to the end and create some other fanciful way to push this back out of their mind. 
and we'll get to that. Because this is here, this is Christ's words, and they have no excuse. They are guilty as charged, so what would you do? You would try to rewrite the law, but they cannot. It is settled forever in heaven, I declare. The world system is not only just apathetic towards what you do, but it's actually antagonistic, and it'll show its ugly head at various times in various ways. So be prepared for it. doesn't always, but it will, ultimately. Prior to this statement in verse 18, Jesus said, if you remember, verse 17, I think that's key to keep in mind, what, is, what are the disciples to do? What is the church to do? They are to do what? To love one another. Verse 17. You're going to need to love one another because there are going to be trying times, difficult times are ahead. Everyone else is going to hate you. So, within the body of Christ, we share the love of Christ and we're commanded to do so. We need encouragement to help insulate against some of the persecution and the hatred that will undoubtedly come. MacArthur provides a nice summary of this idea. He says, Christians are the most loved of all people by God. And they are the most hated of all people by Satan. We are the most loved by God and therefore lavish with all of heaven's blessings. We're the most hated by Satan and therefore hit with all of hell's worst. And we live in that world, the most loved and the most hated, the most blessed and the most assaulted. We have the most spiritual treasure we are likely to have to forfeit the most earthly treasure. That's how we live. That's why Jesus said you better count the cost before you become a Christian. You will be loved by God, but you will be hated by the world. That's what Jesus told his disciples. You're going to be hated. Verse 19 of John 15 he explains, as we reviewed the last few weeks, if you are of the world, the world will love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. <coughs> Notice first, you're not of the world. That is, you're distinctly different from the world system. Two, chosen out of the world that is, chosen out by Christ for salvation, sanctification, and service in ministry to one another and the proclaiming of the gospel. This hatred, then, is fomented, if you can see naturally, because there is a sense in which those that are in Christ who have been taken out of the world then are foreign from it if you will, foreign from this world system. And Christ explained that's who he is. He does it in this terminology in John by saying that he is 
from above. I'll just read you this verse from a previous passage we looked at in 8.23, and he's dealing with his enemies, and he says to them in John 8.23, you are from, and here's the perspective, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. You see the distinction? Christ was clearly distinct from the world. I'm from above, you're from below. I am not from this world, you are from this world. That's the distinction. So there is a sense that when Jesus walks this earth, he is a foreigner, if you will, a stranger, if you will. And so therefore, there's a lack of familiarity due to that Distinction, Not in every respect, you understand, but generally the perspective, the ideology, the, the direction. He would simply say it this way when they asked him, are you a king? He says, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. So be sure to keep that in your eschatological view point. Things are actually going to get worse, not better. And there will be a kingdom that will be ushered in. It is the kingdom of God, which is now among this world in the church, and yes, persecuted. But at the end of the age, all the earth will be full of his glory in perfect radiance to where every eye will see him, even the ones that pierced him. Those that follow Christ are united to Christ and therefore in the same manner are not of this world and in a sense for him. This distinction then I'd argue is really one of the catalysts for this tension, if you will. But it is, it is more than dislike or disdain. People have learned to restrain some of their dislike and their disdain in social expectations and societal norms in which we live. But it will be manifested, this dislike and disdain, as it was in the case of Christ. It always exists, even though it appears dormant. As Jesus' ministry continued, this opposition to him, this hatred, this dormant hate that was there all along, it really kind of ramped up. The more truth he spoke and the more miracles he did, the matter they got at him. <laughs> he wasn't speaking evil or lies or anything like that, and no one could accuse him of it, and he wasn't ever doing anything wrong or bad. In fact, it was always helping, not hindering. But the more ministry he, he engaged in, the more proclamation of it, the matter they got at him. In John chapter 8, Again, he explains, why, why don't you understand what I say and what I'm doing? He's speaking to the world. 
because you can't bear to hear my word is what he's saying. I'm speaking the truth and you can't bear it. Why can't the world bear it? John 8, 44. He simply says this, and he doesn't mince words, by the way. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. You see, Christ speaking truth, they don't want to hear it because they're listening to their father, the devil. They're listening to lies. There's no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks lies out of his own characters, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That characterizes the entire world system under satanic control. So why don't they want to hear Christ? Because he's not speaking lies. He's speaking something different. So, but I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth, and you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, I, I've quoted that before of Christ saying it. I would never ask you to respond to that about me because I can be convicted pretty easy. It doesn't take long. I recognize it in my own life. But here, Christ speaking the truth, asks them straight up to his enemies, anyone? And all you hear is crickets. They cannot convict him of anything. If I tell you the truth, then he asks, why don't you believe me? And here's ultimately why. Because whoever is of God hears the words of God. That's what Christ was speaking, the truth. Nothing but the truth, the words of God. And they were not of God. They instead were of Satan. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. It is a demonstration of it. Rebel against this. It just demonstrates that you're of your father, the devil. You're not in some neutral position at all. There are only two sides, one or the other. You're either with Christ or you're with Satan. That's what he's saying. So there's a distinction in those that follow Christ. And that distinction is demonstrated that they are indeed in Christ. They are of Christ. That is, they believe Christ. They have faith. And therefore, they actually, and this is where we're going. I'm winding up here eventually. They know God. Those that are in Christ actually know God. The world and world system would claim that they know God. They don't. They have no idea. You know why? Because if you don't know Christ, you don't know the Father. And Jesus will mention that here in our text. Those that are in Christ know God through divine revelation in Jesus Christ. That revelation grants a different worldview, a different perspective, a Christian perspective, if you will, that is shaped from above, not below. It is heavenly in that sense and not earthly. It is not culturally bound. It is Christ-bound. 
And then the end of our text, which we probably won't get there in verse 27, 6 to 7, He's got to mention how this is facilitated. It is through the very dynamic work of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus himself with the Father sends to his people, that indeed they might taste and see that the Lord is good, that they might be granted enlightenment, if you will, to see and savor Christ, to behold him in his word, to provide conviction of sin, comfort in Christ, and courage to face whatever circumstance they might find themselves in. The world doesn't know God. They never have. They don't listen to Christ. They create a Christ of their own image. My Jesus they'll say, versus your Jesus. My God versus your God. But I assure you this, what Jesus has said then and what he has charged his disciples to declare is simply this, that they don't have any excuse. And it is a call to listen to the words of Christ and the work of Christ. Let's look at it in our text beginning in verse 20 of John 15, where Jesus explains this theme. And note here how he relates himself and the Father and then emphasizes that they don't have an excuse. You'll see the word guilt here, and I'll unpack that in a bit. That's the whole point. The world is without excuse, particularly because of the incarnation of Christ. That's what he's going with here. And then the proclamation of those that Christ has sent. Verse 20. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. On the flip side, which we won't get to today, but notice here, if they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. So not everyone rejected Christ, right? And in their proclamation, there will be people who believe. So they will proclaim Christ, all right? And people will believe. But for the large part, there is a rejection. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. That's God. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the, the works that no one else did, well, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Let us pray. Well, Father, I do pray that Indeed, we would bear witness of Christ. May the witness of Christ now work on our own hearts, 
grant us courage and conviction and comfort in the ways that we need enlightenment from the Holy Spirit, illumination, courage to proclaim this great truth. And I pray in doing so that many will come to confess Christ as Lord. Save all of our sons and daughters. May they all come to praise your holy name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Ultimately, why the world doesn't hate, uh, why the world does hate, should I say, Jesus and those who follow him is because they're in a state of rebellion against God. I hope you have seen that thus far. Verse 21, Jesus puts it this way, they don't know him who sent me. Who is that? The Father. They don't know God. They have other names and other ideas about God, but they had a God of their own image, not who God truly is. God is ultimately explained and revealed in Jesus Christ. The world is in opposition to God. They're in absolute moral rebellion against God, and they have no excuse. Jesus is saying he is the final word that has come from God and no excuse. The world hates Christ, who is indeed the light of the world, because, as he would say, their deeds are evil. Exposure to the light only demonstrates their own immorality, their own rebellion and resistance of God. So they move to the shadows, if you will, distract their view by putting up certain blinders. They occupy themselves with all kinds of things to a degree that they can push the reality of who God is from their thinking. And this will only lead to further darkness and hardening as their foolish hearts will become darker. But they are without excuse. And beloved, you have no excuse either in rebellion against God. There's at least five principles or more here, reasons that I'd like to unpack, but since I go an hour and a half on introduction, I'll just hit one or two or see what I can do today. The first primary reason for the fact that there is no excuse for unbelief with anybody and with anyone that you might speak to today, tomorrow, or the next day, is because God incarnate has spoken. That's what he's getting to in verse 22. Jesus Christ came in the flesh, walked among us, and spoke absolute truth. That's what he's getting at with this idea of not being guilty, no excuse for their sin in verse 22. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't have been guilty of what we might refer to as original sin. That's the sin of Adam. So we have to understand the context in which Christ is giving this. And just so that you're aware and know, all of mankind 
every single one, has been made sinful in their rebellion, in their alignment, if you will, in their union with Adam, their federal head. Some people ask, well, <clears throat> and have this idea in philosophy of a clean slate. People start out that way. But they started out of the clean slate. They wouldn't die before they knew right and wrong. There's an inherited sin that causes death. And ultimately, Adam represented, and if you want to find text, I'll go through a couple. You can follow along or just listen. I'll jump through a few quickly here and then in our own context in John. But just where you can find this doctrine is in Paul's exposition in the book of Romans where he teaches salvation in that great book. In 5.12 of Romans, he will state categorically, therefore sin came into the world through one man. In context, he's talking about Adam. And death through sins. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. There is an idea that, you know, God doesn't give everybody a a free choice, if you will, to do, to do it again, to do a do-over in the absolute most perfect environment in a perfect man. Adam made a choice in intentional rebellion against God and all of his progeny, all who followed him were born in that sin. That sin spread to all men. The gospel is the good news, however, because as that one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Romans 5, 18, so one act of righteousness, that is this one, Jesus Christ, one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. All are, who are in Christ live. All who are in Adam die. We tell the church at Corinth, Paul would, as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. That's the distinction, 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 22, should I say. In context of John, if you remember in John chapter 3, where he preaches the gospel to Nicodemus, who comes to him, and he thinks he's okay, and Jesus explains to him, unless you're born from above, that's what the word means, a born again, we often translate it, born a second time, a new birth, a heavenly birth, you won't even see the kingdom of God. It, there's a supernatural regeneration that must take place. Why? John three eighteen, because if you don't have faith in Christ... You're condemned already because you haven't believed in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, we're here saying you're not, they're not guilty. If you, they wouldn't be guilty if he didn't come and speak his words. He's not talking about their original sin. People did die. He was saying guilty of what? 
of Christ coming here in this ultimate revelation. This particular word of Christ that was given is signed, sealed, and delivered. There can be no greater word. That's what he's saying. There can be no greater truth than the truth that comes directly from the lips of God. What more could God do? I mean, if you wrote it in the sky, maybe you think it was some sort of illusion. But, but no, here, flesh and bone comes. They could touch, they could see, they could live with him. He spoke, they, they saw his life. God incarnate. He came and spoke. This is the sin of hating the ultimate revelation of God in Christ Jesus the completeness and fullness of that explanation. And beloved, you have no excuse. And no one does as you proclaim this word of Christ. Here's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Long ago, Hebrews 1, and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. You know that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Their idea floating around was how great and holy angels were. They're nothing in comparison. You remember, they fall down and worship him and they cry out what? Holy, holy, holy. That's who this is. Don't think of Jesus any lesser than who he is. Oh, veiled in flesh, no doubt. But this is God incarnate who has come, who has spoken, and there is no excuse. And beloved, the challenge is simply this. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus Christ. Hear him say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hear him say, come to me, all ye who, are lab who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. And... If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, beloved, I would challenge you to spend a lot of extra time in the Gospels and learn of Christ. It's a great place to listen and to learn and to behold and to see this word that Christ has spoken. I mean, I'd have to sit there and read all of it to... <laughs> every bit of it for you to get it. So I encourage you, perhaps if you need a reading plan for this year, here's one. 
Read the four Gospels. Time well spent. Maybe just read one and read it over and over. The one that really focuses in on the glory of Christ more than ever is this gospel we're in in John. And so I encourage you to consider spending time in it. It's a great witnessing plan, by the way, to share with others. I'll never forget talking to a cultist who thought of Jesus as a archangel. It's interesting, by the way, when you deal with false religions, quite often, if you think in terms, you may not know all they believe and whatnot, but what do they think about Christ? What did he say? What do they believe about him? That's what's crucial. That's what Christ is getting here. He is the final word. Listen to him. I talked to occultists and challenged them on the person and work of Christ, and they were challenged. They were just accustomed to working out some little script response, and I was off the script before you know it. And then I could see an interest in the words of Christ. And I said, i tell you what you do. And I hand him a little gospel of John. I said, go read that prayerfully and ask for Jesus Christ to make himself known. Beloved, if you humbly seek for Christ, he's not hiding. He will make himself known. And beloved, if, if you are in Christ and you're following him, I say pray the same prayer and prayerfully read through his word and, and maybe it will grip you at some point in time and overwhelm you. Just listen to some of the words in the Gospel of John. We've been through these, but I'll just read a small selection to whet your appetite for future desire. 651... Jesus, can you see him there saying, after, after he feeds these 5,000 and uses as, at, it, probably 20,000 as many, and he uses this as an illustration in 651, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven, that same analogy above, right? Down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is for the life of the world. 737. Here's the feast day, the last day. They, they had this, remember this thing with the labor and the water and all that, and Jesus uses that as an illustration. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 812. Again, the festival feast of Hanukkah and the lights, and he declares in 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Close to where we're at, one of my favorite sections, particularly this year, I encourage you to dwell in it. Let not your heart be troubled, John 14. Neither let it be afraid. 
In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You may be there forever in the Father's house. And so as he leaves, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives uh, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He's not a liar. Listen to him. He has given his word. This is God incarnate. What a great worship plan to behold Christ, to believe Christ. Secondly, there's no excuse for unbelief because the greatest word, the greatest revelation, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, has been given, and Christ spoke. But beyond that, it's one thing to say. It's quite another to do. And Christ has done the greatest works. First his word and now his works. Notice verse 24 in John 15. And this little phrase is there. I hope you saw it. And he's using the same kind of teaching about not guilty of sin, Again, it's not the original sin he's talking about, not guilty of what sin? Of this sin, of denying the very ultimate work of Christ. There's no greater word given or could be given, and there's no greater works. And notice this little phrase here, what kind of works? The works that no one else did. No one else did. There are other miracles, but they're not many. You look through the Old Testament, there's just a few short times in which that occurred and not much was given. Moses and, and, and Joshua confirming the message and the messenger, that's what they're for. Elijah and Elisha, the same. There's not much there. Read the Gospels the words about Christ, and you're going to get a totally different picture. And I hope that has been painted for you in your mind. When Jesus Christ began his public ministry, can I tell you who was healed? Everyone. You can find that in the Gospels. He went everywhere, and everyone was getting healing. It was like an escalation of it. In our gospel here, John just lists seven specific ones, and he does it purposeful to garner belief. The changing of the water and wine, John 2, healing of the nobleman's son, John 4, healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, John 5, feeding of the 5,000, as I mentioned in chapter 6, walking on the water, same passage, healing a man born blind, John 9, and, of course, the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. These are just mere representations. John is strategic about the signs that he lists here. He's calling out seven distinct ones representative of the myriads of miracles that Jesus did. And you don't have to take my word for it. 
John will tell us in his gospel 20 and verse 30 that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written so that you would believe, believe in Christ, and by believing you might have life in his name. As I mentioned, read the other gospel writers. They talk about him going everywhere and people being healed. Everyone. I remember thinking on this very thing at a passion play that was performed. It's an interesting thing because it's a dramatic effect of, of kind of what's going on there. But what struck me more than anything else and caused me to weep in my chair was just that image of Christ coming to town and people that were diseased were healed. People that were deformed were made right. And people that were dead came to life. Could you imagine what effect that would have even right now? And people, in the falsity of their gospel, attempt to pull some sort of hoodwink crazy thing because people want to see that. But this is real. And it really happened. And it was multitudes and multitudes of people that were healed and were helped. This is, this is Christ who has done work that, that no one else can do. They have no excuse. You have no excuse. Jesus Christ can raise the dead. Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Do you proclaim his greatness and glory? I'm quickly running out of time. I hope I've whet your appetite enough, but I think I'll spend a little bit in John chapter 11 to close this out so that we'll just look at one of these examples of his miracles. And it's a great one. It's the seventh in John. We've looked at it before. It's John chapter 11, and I'll pick up at verse 25, John eleven twenty-five. And you know the background. I've preached on this already. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they were friends, personal friends, acquaintances of Jesus. Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die, but he has a purpose in it. We don't know what his purpose is, but he has a purpose. He has a purpose in all things. But the ultimate thing to note is not this temporal problem that occurs, and it's a great one, and it brings great sorrow to them. They're all crying and weeping. But the joy is to believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? And that's what he'll say in verse 25. To Martha, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's the question Jesus is saying, do you believe it? You have no excuse not to. He's demonstrated it. There are witnesses of it. It isn't just that he said it, but he actually did it. And here is the count. 
Well, she says, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Well, that's a good confession. You're the Messiah. You, you are deity, that is God, and you came into this world, right? He is from above. He comes into the world. She recognizes who Jesus Christ is. And after she does that, she goes to her sister Mary in private, who's weeping over the death of her brother. And Martha tells her that the teacher's here, and he's calling for her. Well, she gets up quickly. She goes to him. Now, Jesus was just outside of the village at that, part, at that point. And notice verse 31, I'm in John 11, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, if you remember when we taught on this, the Jews or the Jewish leaders, these were people that were having really kind of fake empathy for Martha and Mary, and they just wanted to get on the bandwagon. They thought she was going to go out and do her little... Uh, ceremonial acts of weeping, not genuine, there to the uh, tomb. They're unbelievers, is my point. When Mary came, however, to see Jesus, verse 32, what was her response to Jesus? She fell at his feet. This is an act of worship. It is beholding who Christ is. And even at that point, before he even did anything, she falls at his feet, and she recognizes, but her theology isn't strong enough. It's good, but it's not good enough. She said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, <laughs> he upholds all things by the word of his power. <laughs> this is God incarnate. He has a purpose and plan for all that takes place. And even this, she doesn't know. So she's partially right here. But when Jesus saw her weeping, and note this, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, verse 33, in his spirit and greatly troubled. I taught on this before. If you remember, this moving is he has great compassion for those he loves. He, he has great Anger, righteous indignation against these who put up false belief. That's the idea of trouble here. They're coming, and they, they don't really mean it. She does, because they're not falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping him. That's the distinction, you see. They're just paying lip service to him. They're not worshiping him. This is God incarnate. He has already spoken. And he's done many, many works at his miracles. He's about to do a, a, a spectacular one in their sight, and he's troubled. So he asked, where did you lay? And Jesus wept, verse 35. And I think that weeping is on both sides. Understand the great compassion that God has for his own that he loves. If you are in sorrow and weeping, even though like both Martha and Mary, really, they don't quite understand fully what's going on. There is an empathy. He, has a, he is a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, though we, we, we may not fully understand it. 
Don't ever miss the compassion. But beyond that, too, the weeping also includes this indignation against those who would not believe. Both are true. The Jews say, see how he loved him. But some of them said, see, this, is, this kind of tells where they're coming from, their unbelief. Well, couldn't he open the eyes of the blind? By the way, that's a miracle. And there's his enemies affirming that no one else did what Jesus did. He took somebody without eyes and gave them eyes. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? The answer is absolutely yes. But he has a purpose in it. Not your purpose. He has his purpose. And so, verse 38, Jesus is moved again. And he came to the tomb. This moved again is troubled again on both sides. And this is the tr indignation against unbelief. So he comes to the cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, well, take the stone away. Martha's sister, the dead man, said to him, Lord, well, by this time there'll be, be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. <laughs> Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He purposely allowed this so that there would be no confusion. This would, this would only be a miracle of God to regenerate decayed flesh on a body. It isn't just waking someone up who had been asleep it is actually regenerating their physical body. This indeed is the glory of God, the beauty of his divine attributes, the beauty of his ability to do all things. So they took away the stone, and Jesus prays then, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. Of course, they're one with each other. There isn't a time in which they're not heard, and there is not a time in which they speak, that, in which they conflict one another in their thoughts and their ideas. But he tells us in John why he allowed them to hear the prayer. I said this on the count of the people standing around so that they would believe, so that when you read this, that you would believe, so that the Holy Spirit would... would uh, enlighten your heart and allow you to see the significance of what's going on here that you may believe and so when he said these things he cried out with his loud voice you see him Lazarus come out and the man that had died the man that was in a state of decay came out still bound in these linen strips and his face then wrapped with his cloth. They're stunned, so much so that he has to tell them to unbind him and let him go. I mean, if a guy came in walking like this, wouldn't some of her reactions naturally be to go over and take that stuff off of him? No, they were astonished and shocked. What more should I ask today, could Jesus possibly do than that right there? And that's just one of them. I say none. There's no excuse not to believe on Jesus Christ. And the call and the command to all of us, beloved, is simply this, look and live. Believe his word, 
believe his work, and live. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will give us great insight into your truth. Change us from the inside. Conform us more to your image. Cause great belief in the world of unbelief. And give us the courage to call others to hear the words of Christ and to see the work of Christ and live in his glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now privately where you're at to reflect and think on these. I do pray that you give us great courage and conviction to truly trust and obey you in all things. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand and turn to 500 in our hymnals. 500, trust and obey. Happy is the person who trusts in you. Father, we're indeed thankful for the many great words you've given us in your scriptures, Lord, and for this uh, word out of Psalm 47. Father, you tell us to clap your hands, O people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to the king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises and psalms. God reigns over the nations. 
God sits on his holy throne. The princes of people gather as the people of God in Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Amen and amen. We're dismissed.